Hello and welcome to this devotional series looking at the book of Acts, weaving our way, journeying our way through this wonderful book, this, this look at the early church, the birth of the early church, and what it means for us today in the church of the 21st century. We are currently in Acts chapter 4, looking at verses 5 to 12 in part 2 of a little mini-series, looking at the trial of Peter and John when they healed the lame leper outside the temple. So my name is Lloyd, and I'm just going to pray briefly, and let's discuss what this might mean. Holy Spirit, would you come and awaken our hearts to hear from you? Would you make these words come alive to us? We pray for Jesus to be glorified as we open the scriptures and look at what happened today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 5 to 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So previously the priests, the captain of the guard and the Sadducees had imprisoned Peter and John for an act of kindness, they had been the, the hands that, that healed this lame beggar <clears throat> outside of the temple. Today we hear the charge brought against these two apostles and the defense that they bring to these activities that they've been doing. And this is one of the most powerful defenses of the gospel ever. So let's look at the first few verses. So it says the next day. So they've been overnight in the prison and they get pulled in front of this Sanhedrin, scribes and Pharisees together. <clears throat> and the high priestly family, Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. So from prison to trial. Today we begin the trial. And they're before the same Sanhedrin who has just recently, a couple of weeks ago, condemned Jesus to the cross. So there's not much hope for a fair trial, there's not much scope um, for a good outcome, it seems. If they persecute and kill the Messiah and the leader, what holds for the followers? But, as we will see today, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Sovereign Lord scoffs at them. So despite all the odds against these two 
disciples, we're going to see a remarkable change in events where the accused become the accusers and how the religious leaders are left dumbfounded as these remarkably normal and ordinary apostles silence them. So we'll look at how off mark, off the mark these religious rulers were. They have God laughing at them, at their attempts of piety and attempts to, to look like they're in control. They gather together today, but to discuss and accuse about the wrong things. They oppose the very gospel that they are supposed to represent and be the pinnacle of. So who are these leading? We saw in those verses there was a guy called Annas, a former high priest, but who still wielded significant control amongst the religious elite. In fact, over here in this passage, he's identified as the high priest. Then you've got Caiaphas, who was actually the high priest, the current one, but he's the son-in-law to Annas. Then you've got John and Alexander, and these are some other people with some authority. Not sure exactly what their role is, except that they're complicit in this Sanhedrin, in this trial. And then it says all of the high priestly family, the whole family, most likely including previous high priests, wielding significant political power. And so basically, they are all involved in this. Their family, their extended family, the whole lot. They're all speaking from the same songbook. They are all opposing God, His purposes, and they are instead pursuing personal power, personal prestige, pr position, and they're pretending to protect and represent the religious establishment. There's a lot of the same type of spirit, the same type of people alive and well in the church and the church structures of today. Primarily, as we've seen here, about money, power, structure, prestige, but with no real inkling of anything to do with God's glory or worried about His kingdom being established and being expanded in all the world. What must we do? Beware of such, for they create after their own kind. If you hang around an Annas or Caiaphas or an Alexander or a John or the family, that, that, they, that whole setup expects only just to become like them or consumed and crushed by them. That's the only outcome. You'll only become like them or be crushed by them. So they set these apostles in their midst and they inquired, by what power and authority did you do this? It's a very intimidating setup if you think about it. They're almost like a pride of lions surrounding their prey about to pounce. There's about 70 of them and there's only two of these apostles. And these apostles just spent the night in, in prison. So they were probably a bit sleepy, probably tired, hard floor, not much food, cold. The, the, the scribes and Pharisees are probably in a comfortable bed last night. So they come all prepared. The disciples are probably unwashed, unshaven, um, bundled in, and they stand before these 70. And this question is very similar to what 
Jesus encountered when he cleared the temple. So look at Luke chapter 19, where Jesus clears the temple. He enters the temple and drives out those who were selling there, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he began to teach daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes um, were seeking to destroy him, and they did not find anything they could do. Because the people were hanging on his every word. They, they were hanging on Jesus' words. And so one day when Jesus is there in the temple teaching and preaching, the chief priests and scribes come up to him and say, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. That's the same question. Apparently Jesus wasn't very, he didn't look like anyone. He was, he was pretty much a nobody. So who are you? We, we need to find out. It wasn't, wasn't apparent from what he was wearing or what he was doing that, that, that he was one with, with, with much power, with much, he wasn't known amongst the polit political elite. Jesus was just an ordinary person. So they had to ask him, who gave you this authority? We can't see where it came from. It's not us. Um, and so coming back to our story today, that same question is posed to Peter and John. But it carries an extra edge, just as we've said just now with, with Jesus. It can be read, who, who are you to do this? You're not very impressive. You're too ordinary. How can one such as you, one so ordinary, one so normal, one just a commoner, do this. You are insignificant in our eyes, the Sanhedrin says to Peter and John. By this it is seen that, and it becomes clear, that their power came from somewhere else. It wasn't apparent from them. It wasn't apparent. By looking at Peter and John, you couldn't say, okay, there's their power. They're dressed nicely. They, we, we know them. They've come from that theological college. They're connected to those political people. They look very strong in, the, in and of themselves. They're big people. They're gifted speakers. No, no. They weren't very impressive to look at. Nor did they carry them themselves around. They didn't throw themselves around like these religious high priests who wanted the applause of people. They were very different. They were very normal, very everyday, let's call it that. So the question is, how can you do this? Who appointed you? And we see how the scribes and Pharisees had all been appointed into their powerful roles by the will in the hands of men, by political structures, by committees. But how did these disciples get their power? And we hold our breath a little bit here for the response from Peter and John, because we know Peter previously, when he'd been challenged to identify, are you, are you one of his people? He had denied it three times, even swearing, saying, I do not know this Jesus. So the last time he'd, he'd been pressed, Peter denied his relationship with Jesus. So what will happen today? What will happen now with Peter? But this is a new Peter, a brand new, a spirit-filled Peter. Here is Peter who has spoken to the risen Christ, who has seen the risen Christ, walked amongst his, him and his people for a few weeks now, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and has been commissioned by Jesus himself to go into all the world with the gospel of Christ. Who he was before is now gone. Now he has been before the King of Kings. 
and he can stand before mere men and give such a powerful example. So this scene that we see right now is full of contrasts. Those with real authority, the apostles, sit accused and almost needing to defend themselves. Those who are humble are accused of pride by those who are most prideful and arrogant, so the scribes and Pharisees. Those with no learning know much, whereas those who've been to the theological colleges and the religious establishment, they are without knowledge of the true and living God. Those who are accused of opposing God actually represent him. Those who have performed a great kindness are accused of a great evil and are jailed. The kingdom of God is often upside down or completely opposite to what the world values, the world pushes forward, what it exalts. So let's hear the defense offered by Peter. We've been holding our breath for a few minutes. Then it says in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So we notice, first of all, from Peter's response, his boldness. There's no hesitation, there's no introspection, there's no looking at his notes, there's no looking around to see what other people think of him. No, he just brings absolute clarity to the situation. The council up to this point had been vague. They had referred to uh, this, but they hadn't really defined what it is. They were, they were too scared to, to name the kindness. They were too scared to say, we're accusing you of healing a lame man. They were too afraid of that, so they just said this. So, G, so Peter defines it and enlarges upon it. So instead of defending himself and looking to clear his name and or getting his own freedom, Peter instead points them to Jesus and is concerned primarily with the glory of God in this whole story. And such are the marks of the true follower of Jesus. So let's look at his response. He starts off by saying, rulers of the people and elders. <clears throat> so it's, there's this sense of respect. He doesn't, doesn't start shouting and, and yelling at them. He's just respectful. You're the rulers of the people. And often being obnoxious when we declare the gospel just, just ruins the show. Respect melts many a hard heart. And then the clarity that we spoke about earlier. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, so if we are, I don't know, you haven't said it, scribes and Pharisees, but if we are for the healing of this crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, so he's defined the this that they were scared of, the this was an act of kindness, the healing of a cripple. And this should have been something rejoiced in, something wondered at, not frowned upon. But here Peter confirms it for all listening. Their mouths had been a bit stuttering, they hadn't really been clear about what the charges. Peter confirms it. The charges that we are accused of kindness. We're accused of healing a crippled man who is now walking and who's standing right before you right now. One who was once dependent on other people has been made productive. That's our charge. We are guilty. He doesn't need to defend himself because that's a good deed. The, the early church is in effect on trial for its kindness. And would this ever be the case? Rather be naive and kind than calculating and cold and not accused. 
So what does he do next? He points to Jesus. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but God raised, by him this man is standing before you well. So it's a declaration that Peter comes up with. He declares the glory of God, the goodness of God, the power of God to, to be resurrected. And the extent of which and the reach covers the entire nation. So it's to you and all the people of Israel. This message needs to go out everywhere. Let it be recorded for all to hear. Peter does not need to say who gave him the authority. He's almost ignored the question. <laughs> He's ignored the question from the scribes and Pharisees. It's clear where the power comes from. Jesus. Those who lack authority are often insecure and questioning about other people. If you have the same call from God as Peter and John did, if you have a genuine call of God, you can confidently yet humbly proceed as God directs you. Peter attributes all to Jesus, knowing that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. This strikes a match and burns the entire theology in one sentence. He contrasts what happened and what is happening. So you crucified, and they don't believe in the resurrection, but God raised. Theology all gone in one sentence. And also, he accuses them. He puts the blame on them. You crucified. It wasn't the Romans. It was you who instigated it. So he puts the blame on them. The charge is at their door. It is now clear that the accused, so Peter and John were previously being accused, but the accused now is the entire Sanhedrin. They are being accused of crucifying an innocent man, Jesus. They stand on the block. And they need to give an explanation for their unkindness. Why were you unkind to Jesus? We we're on trial for being kind. You were terrible. You murdered someone. We raised someone up. The whole trial has taken a very different turn to what they had hoped. The evidence is overwhelming. They all knew the former cripple. And yet, here he stands as exhibit number one. So, what now? Peter moves on. Accusation number two. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So the accusation that they ignored Jesus. You, were, you rejected your Messiah. And Peter references Psalm 180 and a messianic prophetic scripture to show that they were a Sanhedrin at odds with God's own purposes, rejecting God by rejecting his plans and his Messiah. So they were not able to thwart God, but rather God himself, regardless, has put in place this cornerstone. When they rejected God's plans, God just carried on going. Regardless, he set up his church, he's healing people, this cripple has been healed. And then Peter moves on remarkably with a call to salvation, to the Saviour, to the only one, the only Saviour. And he says this, there is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. So Peter moves from 
the trial and the, the crippled man and the, the healing of the cripple straight through to salvation from sin. And whilst the, the Jewish elite taught and they prided in their Jewishness and that they were the chosen people of God and therefore needed no saviour, they were, they, were, they were saved by birth, by being part of the Jewish nation. Here, Peter abolishes that fake teaching. There is a need to be saved, Peter says. And there is only one who can save, Jesus. There is only one saviour. There is only one refuge from the horror of sin and hell. His name is Jesus. He is the only safety from the wrath of God against sin. Universalism, all roads lead to God, is dead in the water after this statement by Peter. All roads do not lead to God. Only in Christ is salvation found or even possible. There exists no other offer or even option. Only Jesus leads to God. So today, do you know this Jesus who can not only heal your body like he healed this lame beggar, but can heal your soul too, can save you to all eternity from your sin? He can forgive and heal sin, not only the sin, but the effects of the sin he can heal. The stain of sin he can remove, as well as the sin itself. So do you know this Jesus? Have you been resisting him in your life like these scribes and Pharisees, maybe in your church? I plead with you today, come to Jesus right now.